Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast from Monday, March 27th. What are Canadians expecting from this week's federal budget? We discuss the latest results from national polling on the topic with Greg Jack, VP of Public Affairs with Ipsos. When a source wishes to remain anonymous, how do we know a news story or a report is accurate? We tackle that topic with Brad Clark, Professor of Broadcast Media Studies from Mount Royal University, to discuss why journalists protect sources and how he views the current state of journalism in Canada. Struggling to eat healthy on a tight budget? We get some tips from nutritionist Terence Boating on how to stretch your food dollars without sacrificing the nutritional value of the meals you feed your family. The federal budget set to be released tomorrow. So what is most important to Canadians within that budget? With the latest polling data from Ipsos, we're joined this morning by Greg Jack, who is the Vice President of Public Affairs for Ipsos Canada. Hi, Greg. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Uh, what does this latest polling tell us? What, what have you found through the polling that is important to Canadians ahead of tomorrow's budget? We are seeing a large focus on the part of Canadians on pocketbook issues. So things that they uh, are directly affected by, that would include rising inflation, costs, uh, lowering taxes, and, um, and, and another priority is greater investments in health care. But uh, really seeing a focus on pocketbook issues as Canadians are feeling the pinch of high prices. It also looks to be, Greg, when you talk about, you know, Canadians making different incomes, you had some different concerns and interests, including increasing taxes for well-off Canadians. That was, you know, flagged as well, wasn't it? Absolutely. That was uh, actually the fourth highest priority that the Canadians mentioned. And, of course, in our question, we said, you know, increasing taxes for Canadians who are better off. Uh, that's a relative term. It depends on, on who you consider to be better off. But there's been a lot of talk about, about that by, uh, by the government in terms of, you know, taxing the ultra-rich in that. And Canadians are, are not only wanting to see government provide them relief, but they want to see the government uh, recover some funds from people who they might think are, are maybe making too much money. All right, let's talk about pocketbook issues, obviously, lowering taxes. What about uh, health care? I know that was and it is, continues to be important to people. How did that show in the polling? Well, it was the third highest priority, or sorry, second highest priority. Um, at, uh, at 35%, it was third. Um, really important for, uh, no surprise here, for, for boomers, um, and really not that important for, for Gen Z. Uh, and that's, you know, due to as you get older, you, you need health care more. But also uh, a big priority for women. We had 40% of women saying that that was their, uh, one of their top three priorities, and only 25% of men. Did you notice, Greg, any differences regionally when it came to uh, concerns or issues uh, for the upcoming budget? Any, any differences? We did. Um, you know, number one, the, uh, the desire for some of those pocketbook uh, uh, issues, uh, help for those things, um, wasn't as high in Quebec. What we saw in Quebec was a real push for the government to invest in health care. And I think that reflects some of the uh, sentiment uh, in Quebec around the, the need for, for more doctors and investments in, in health care. We also didn't see um, as much of a focus on increasing the taxes for Canadians who are better off in Ontario. Uh, that was quite a bit lower uh, and quite a bit higher in BC. Perhaps that, that reflects the fact that uh, a lot of the higher income earners actually live in Ontario and they, they realize that they might be talking about themselves in that case. What about Alberta? Did anything specifically pop up for us here in this province? Well, not surprisingly, Albertans do want to see lower taxes, but uh, they're not the highest. 37% of Albertans picked uh, lowering taxes in their top three. And, um, you know, otherwise, Alberta was, was fairly consistent with what you would expect from, from Albertans. Obviously, you know, a provincial government is coming up. We're going into our provincial election is coming up. We're going into that. I think you've seen the Alberta government uh, focusing on pocketbook issues and, and providing relief to Albertans. And obviously, this is the federal government. But 
both the uh, Conservatives uh, in Alberta and the New Democrats, who are the opposition, uh, have been laying out priorities on pocketbook issues and on health care that reflect Canadian broad priorities uh, in this federal budget poll. Greg, before we let you go, can you give us some of the parameters, or some details on how this uh, poll was conducted? Yeah, we, we conducted this uh, with 1,001 Canadians online across Canada, uh, you know, uh, just earlier in March. And we weighed everything for regional differences and, and gender and, and census and that. So it's a representative, uh, you know, snapshot of Canadians. The, the confidence levels are a little bit lower uh, by region and demographics, given the sample. But uh, this is a standard poll that we, we conduct on a regular basis to, to take the uh, measure of Canadians' views. And uh, we're happy to, to be able to talk about it with you guys today. Thank you. Really appreciate your time, Greg. We'll see how everybody feels once the budget actually comes down tomorrow. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Take care. You too. Greg Jack, Vice President, Public Affairs for Ipsos Canada. When a journalist breaks a story, they might not always disclose their source. So how do we know a report is accurate? Joining us to discuss why journalists protect sources and the state of journalism right now in Canada is Brad Clark, Broadcast Media Studies Professor at MRU and Veteran Journalist. Thank you for joining us live this morning, Brad. My pleasure. Well, let's break this down because investigative reports from news outlets will feature information from unnamed sources quite frequently. Mm-hmm. Why is this, uh, you know, doable? Like, what are the parameters surrounding, you know, saying that I'm going to protect the name of my source or the identity to remain anonymous? How is this setup work? News organizations have really cr- clear criteria about when they can um, decide not to reveal the name of a source. It's it's fairly rare circumstances. In my experience. We were only allowed to do that when there was substantial risk to a source for coming forward. Um, That can be that can be as severe as a threat to to life and liberty, potentially. But even, you know, ramifications for their their career or their livelihood, if they excuse me, if they were to um, be called out for being a, a whistleblower, for example. So. Usually there's a bit of a process for doing it, and it involves the, the reporter talking with senior editors to decide whether that kind of protection for a source is warranted. We'll talk about the, the whistleblower portion of that, of your statement in just a second, but I wanted to ask you, you know, with the state of journalism right now, with, the, you know, that whole fake news era that we went through and people having, you know, there's a lot of people out there who just don't believe in journalists anymore. When someone says, or a journalist says, you know, they've got a source, but they won't name it, does that kind of take away from the the, the honesty that we're trying to project as journalists and news people out there? I think, I think journalism can be more transparent about when they protect a source and explain to the public why they why they use that rationale to protect a source so i think there's a better job um a a better job around that that journalism could be doing and and we have seen a movement towards more of that transparency it's interesting with regard to unnamed sources where it came to a head in the last four or five years was in the trump white house where sources within his own staff would would leak information on condition that they not be named. And then they would go after the journalist for releasing that information, attacking those journalists in a very aggressive way to the point where journalists would have to come out and reveal who their sources were. So, so but, but I, think, I think it would probably be better if, if journalists, when they decide to do that, if they could maybe dedicate a little bit of time to... To explaining here this right. is why we're doing this mm-hmm. but i think in some cases they're also concerned that any additional information they reveal 
could also contribute to identifying the source. Right. Well, and, and within your role now at MRU, and I think a lot of people, when you say, okay, well, I feel like we're being kept in the dark here. And it's not blind faith from the public, but I'm sure this is something that you teach your students, Brad. The protocols and governance in place when it comes to journalistic practices, whether it's chorus or even, you know, you have a vast background. I worked with you a million years ago at CBC. The protocols in place that the public doesn't see that the rigors that are gone through, is that something you teach your students? And if you can break this down for the listeners. Yeah, we, we, we absolutely, and, and we, have, we have that protocol in place for our, our student journalist content as well. So, so and it's, it's a really similar process for what we have uh, to what you see in industry. When, when, when I was at CBC, if you were, had a situation where a source w- wished to remain anonymous and if you wished to grant that, you had to you had to talk to the quote unquote senior journalistic leader in Toronto, and and part of the protection was not talking to a bunch of people about who the source was, but you had to identify the source and give give the the, the leader the opportunity to connect with the source to to verify that information, and that's similar to to what we do at Mount Royal. If we if we're in that situation, we usually have three faculty members weigh in and decide. And there has to be a compelling reason as well. But, but I, I also think there's a bit of a misperception that unnamed source means that the journalist doesn't know who it is. And, and that's not true either. Mm-hmm. And the, the journalist always has a really clear idea of the background of the source. They would have spent considerable time to find the source, find the information. And, and so uh, it's not a case of you know, they don't know what they're talking about. And just taking random information at face value, exactly. right? As you said, it's got to be verified. Exactly. Yeah. Let's talk about the whistleblower uh, concept. How are whistleblowers treated in Canada? It's very different from the U.S., isn't it? Yeah, the, there's there's no real legal um, provision for for um, protection of, of sources the way there are, there are in, in, in some U.S. states. There are shield laws to, to protect confidential sources. Um, so it's it's a it's a it's a little bit tricky. The courts have been a little bit reluctant to go after journalists who are protecting sources, but journalists can be compelled to reveal them if the judicial interest, if the interest related to justice is um, supersedes the the public interest. And there's also there's also an aspect of this where where um, um, the courts have recognized the the charter right of journalists to freedom of expression. But but again, this this notion of serving justice is 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 paramount. So the, while there is there is some, it's really not it's nearly not nearly as well ensconced mm-hmm. as it is in in some other jurisdictions in the U.S. So so journalists, I think, uh, generally need to be careful and, and need to be forthright with their sources, saying you know if if uh, if I'm compelled, if the if the court says I have to say who you are, I have to. Wow. Interesting. Okay, so so there are uh, differences for sure, and maybe we watch too many American television. <laughs> I think so. Um, but, you know, as far as is in your position, you, you're uh, bringing up the next, you know, uh, wave of journalists. How important is it, especially in 2023, and I'm not sure how long you've been in your position, Brad, how has it changed as far as so much information out there telling them to not only, uh, you know, check their sources as journalists, but check the sources of the bits of information that they're gleaning online because... It, it's the fire hose of information now. Finding credible you know, media sources is that part of the program? It absolutely is. And and, and um, um, uh, it's interesting. Um, a colleague of mine at MRU, uh, Brooks DeSilia, and I are, are involved in a research project right now, getting a bit of a sense of 
how fact-checking has has really started to find traction in the industry. Uh, certainly, in, in a lot of places, it's been there for a long time, especially when we think of magazine reporting. But with a lot of news reporting, fact-checking was kind of like the the three-minute vet before you go on air. And uh, and uh, that's that's starting to change. There's just so much information, and there's so many ways to deliberately mislead people and fool people, including journalists, that we really need to be aware of it. You're a prof at Mount Royal University. Talk to us about the journalism program there. It, are you seeing, has have, have the numbers of people wanting to be part of that world kind of petered out, or are we seeing a resurgence, do you think? I think we're starting to see a bit of a comeback. We did see our numbers start to suffer for a while, and uh, with the pandemic, um, there, you know, some people weren't all that interested in, in attending. And being yelled at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean... Uh, like, I don't know if, if I could be a journalist today, given the, the social media environment. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, what we do find with the journalism students is a lot of them have, the, have this um, really wonderful ideal that they want to change the world and they mm-hmm. still see journalism as a way to do that. So we're still seeing, we're, we're seeing, I think, a bit of a resurgence. I also think uh, it's funny how, how, you know, we paid so much attention to the U.S., but I, I do sort of feel like given some of the situation there that that uh, students are motivated to to truth tell and and uh, see journalism as a way to maybe do that good excellent good, good stuff thanks for your time this morning brad we appreciate it yeah great good to be here that was brad clark broadcast media professor at mru and a veteran journalist if you're struggling to eat healthily during all these increases in grocery prices, you are certainly not alone. Canadians are finding it very tough to access nutritious food with the grocery prices up 10.6% compared to last year. But there's some hope for you. Today, we're joined by Terence Watting, a Canadian nutritionist who has valuable tips on how to stretch your food budget without compromising healthy eating. Good morning to you, Terence. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Okay, so grocery prices, we all know, they're sky high compared to what they were just even one year ago. Canadians finding it really tough to buy healthy foods at a decent price. So you've got some tips and advice to help us to buy healthy but on a budget. What have you got for us? Absolutely. So I came with three tips today, and I think the first one that I tell all my clients is first go to the grocery store with a list and better yet, a plan. If you know exactly what you want to buy and you sort of mapped out your week of food, it really prevents that sort of wandering eye from buying a lot of things we don't need and us ending up at the register with much more food than we intended. Um, And to that point, you know, I I read a study the other day that suggested Canadians often waste as much as one-third of the food that we buy. So if we have a plan, we're far less likely to waste our food, meaning that's more money in our pocket. The second big... Oh, one, one more second, when we plan, I'm guessing this should be a whole family. If you don't live on your own, it has to kind of be that whole family thing, I think, because you got to you know make sure everybody's happy, everybody has something that they can eat, and at the same time, if everybody's invested in the plan, it'll work better. And what I'm saying here, Terrence, is I have teenagers, less <laughs> complaining. Yep, yep, <laughs> absolutely. If, if you get input from everyone and everyone's agreed to the menu for the week, mm. it's much, much easier to get that buy-in and actually see the food end up in everyone's stomach. Yeah, yeah. Okay, give us tip number two, Terrence. So number two, and this is really for, uh, I would say, best for smaller households. You know, I just live with my fiance here, which is purchasing frozen fruit and vegetables. Now, the actual cost is slightly more expensive than fresh. But again, if you have the habit of, you know, throwing out half of the broccoli you buy or throwing out half of your spinach, 
buying frozen is just as good from a nutrient density perspective, and you'll find it'll actually last the full week or months if, if, if that. So buying fresh and frozen if you're not frozen if you're not likely to eat all the fresh food that you buy. Okay, well, it depends on where you are. Maybe you don't have a lot of access to the fresh stuff, the frozen one part, but how about the canned as well? I know that that has, you know, kind of had a bad rap, but in the 70s and 80s, we kind of grew up with canned vegetables and fruits to a certain extent. Can you talk about the nutritional value in the canned varieties? Yeah, canned can also be just as nutrient-dense. See, the the trick is whether it's uh, frozen or canned, they're typically picking them when they're ripe and then preserving them. I think part of the issue for some people, if they're watching their blood pressure, some canned vegetables are preserved with a little bit of salt. What I tell my clients is just rinse them off before you use them so you're kind of washing away some of that salt, and then it's just as good as fresh. Okay, so we got tip number one. You go with a grocery list or and or a meal plan. Number two, buy frozen fruit and veg. Number three, Terrence? So third one, I think this is the biggest one, which is try and add a little bit more plant here in Toronto, and I went to uh, my Loblaws, and I was looking. Chicken breast right now is going for $23 a kilogram. I went over to the uh, to the chickpea aisle, and I found, similarly, one kilogram of chickpeas for $4. So you can imagine if you have a few uh, bean chilies or, or some wraps with chickpeas in them, you will save a lot of money and still get lots of quality protein. I'm just going to repeat that because you cut out at right when you were saying what it is. So it was try to add more plant-based options, correct? Yes, yes. Like chickpeas was the example I was giving there. Right. So, yes. So, so on the list here, you have uh, beans, lentils, chickpeas, for example. And I think that there has been trepidation in the past because, for example, lentils, it, it takes just a little bit of skill and know-how to, to get these lentils where you want to go and chickpeas, the recipes. But with the resource online, as far as recipes now, you can find endless recipes for the beans, lentils, and chickpeas, can't you? It's so true, yes. There's so much good stuff online. And over and above that, going back to the, the canned idea, um, you know, I totally understand if you're not used to soaking chickpeas or lentils overnight and doing the whole process, canned are, are good to eat right away. All you got to do is rinse them, and then you can add them directly to, to your recipes, and you're still getting a huge cost saving. How do I hide what they are from my children? <laughs> <laughs> that is a different challenge. Yeah. But <laughs> I think a chili is a really good way to go because you still get all those other strong flavors and then they're just kind of slipped in. Good point. As recently as I think it was in the past week or a week and a half here, uh, Terrence, we, we spoke with a food stylist who talked about the, uh, you know, the unsung hero of leftovers. And when you're cooking, to cook more to stretch those meals and as a result, saving the dollars. Is that something that you work with clients uh, surrounding? Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, there's two ways I do that. One, I love sort of these bowl idea for for a meal. So let's say you have some leftover chicken, maybe some leftover chickpeas, some veggies kind of hanging around. You can put them all on a bed of rice, and now you have a brand new meal. And and for the family, they can also have lots of decisions. So if there's broccoli and spinach left in the fridge, chicken and and pork, everyone can kind of create their own bowls out of leftovers, and you have a brand new meal. Another thing I also tell my clients is, what you ate for dinner could totally just be tossed in a wrap for lunch the next day. And again, you're kind of stretching out that meal. So I'm a big fan of leftovers as well. Curious, Terrence, uh, you know, air fryers are, are the hot thing right now. Anything, you know, mm-hmm. as a nutritionist that you kind of have come across that's maybe a fun way to change things up a little bit using the air fryer? Yeah, I like the air fryer because you can get a good sort of crispy finish. 
uh, on a lot of different foods. I'm a big fan of using, um, I often put salmon in the air fryer, but also I love to kind of slice up a, a potato and put it in. From a cost-saving perspective, you know, making your own homemade fries, mm-hmm. if you kind of have some skills with a knife, can be much, much cheaper than buying a larger pack of frozen because a lot of what you're paying for is somebody else to do the work. Right. Uh, you touched, uh, Terrence, on, on the, uh, you know, the chili and the beans, for example, and using more plant-based alternatives when it comes to protein. I know one of the furthest ways to stretch dollars is with pasta. Can, can we make pasta and, and pasta sauce nutritional and still feed, you know, a family of six, uh, but still have that nutritional value? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And actually, this is something I work with uh, picky children with a lot. And so one thing I often recommend is blending different vegetables and then adding it to sort of a cooking tomato sauce. That way they're hidden, but you have an extremely nutrient-dense tomato sauce that you can toss on a pasta and you're getting, you know, a lot of your vitamins and minerals that way. So I, I think carrots go really, really well that have been grated and blended. Peppers go excellent. Um, and as well, you can also find you can sneak things like broccoli if they're kind of blended all the way down and then cooked into the tomato sauce. Okay, you opened the door, Terrence. You, you help families with picky kids, basically, <laughs> obviously. Mm-hmm. What, so, you know, what if, this is my example in my house, my son doesn't even eat pasta sauce. So how, what's kind right. of the best way if, if you've got a kid who only eats, you know, basically white products like white bread, white rice, all that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Is there a way to, to get them eating better when they, they clearly don't like strong tastes? Yeah. So first of all, I think the first step is getting any child, any teenager invested in food. Um, I used to uh, work for a a kid's cooking camp and half of the kids there were extremely picky eaters and that's why their parents sent them to the cooking camp. And what we found was when they got to choose the ingredients that they wanted to make for whatever food we were making that day, they were hands-on, they were washing vegetables, they were chopping, they were putting it together. All of that prep work that uh, the children were involved in made them at least want to try it. Mm-hmm. And that's the first step, mm-hmm. right? If someone's involved, if someone's picked the broccoli that they want to taste and they've picked the recipe and they put it in their mouth, that's step one. Now, whether or not they like it, that's up to them <laughs> and over time. But I do know for a lot of picky eaters, the first step is putting it in your mouth. I, I don't think, though, Sue, you're going to have any chance to... You know, stop the kids from just eating the white products, you know, the, the breads and the stuff and the rice uh, and switch to pure green. I think that's a, the dream, unless it's green Kool-Aid or something. Yes, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, fair thanks enough. so much for your time, Terrence. We appreciate it. That's a super timely topic and uh, some tips we can use for sure. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That is Terrence Boateng, a Canadian nutritionist.